talking about the angel tree. You know, we have the out there is the, the cards you pick up. You make sure you check, check it through with Heidi. Don't just grab and run without letting her know there's stuff she wants you to have. But uh, one of the great things about this, uh, Prison Fellowship ministers to prisoners in uh, all kinds of ways. They minister to them in the prison, obviously, in various ways. They minister to their families. They uh, offer their kids um, uh, a week at camp in the summer, mentoring during the year, and then one of the things they do is get them Christmas presents in the name of the father or the mother who is incarcerated. And what happens is we do this every year, and we get letters at times. And I, I want to read you one. This isn't like I, I, I make sure, this isn't like a super emotional one. Otherwise, I'd never get through it. All right, he just says, uh, Dear First Church Ministries, I would like to personally write and thank you so much for sending my children their Christmas gifts last year. Apologies for taking so long to write you all. What you all did was truly a blessing, and I'm truly grateful. The children love the gifts, and they also say thank you. I grew up in Newport News area, and once I'm released in 2020, I plan to pay you all a visit and personally thank you for providing such a blessing to my children in my absence. God bless you, and thank you so much, Heidi, for taking the time to write me. Kendrick Alexander. This is what we're talking about. When Jesus said, you do this unto the least of these, who is he talking about? He's talking about the people that society tends to forget. He's talking about the people that society tends to look down upon. And who are those people? People in prison. He lists that. People in prison. Orphans or kids whose parents are in prison who if God doesn't intervene more than likely in their life, they will end up in prison too. That's what the statistics say. And so what's happening? Um, um, prison fellowship is being a part of God intervening in their lives. And we have a small part in that. We can be a part in that too. You buy two gifts and they'll be listed there what they want. They're, they're gifts that, that prison fellowship makes sure are reasonable gifts, not too expensive for you. You buy those two gifts, you wrap them, you bring them here. We throw a Christmas party for those kids right before Christmas, and every one of them gets two gifts in the name of their parent who's incarcerated. This is how the love of God works. This is why Jesus said, when you do this to the least of these, you do it to me. That's what we're talking about here. So I encourage you, 75 kids is nothing, right? That's nothing, and it ends up being approximately $30 to $40 for both presents, somewhere in that range for both presents. And, you know, when you think about what, and, oh, this, no, I shouldn't even say, it's like a guilt trip, but, hey, let me give you a little guilt trip. When you think about what you spend for Christmas, $30 to $40 for some kid who doesn't have a, a, a parent, knows where their parent is, and uh, has to deal with that, that's nothing for us. Okay, guilt trip over. Um, now, here's, a, here's something that's a good thing. If you have had the pleasure and the responsibility of serving in the armed forces of the United States of America, would you please stand? Thank you. Today is Veterans Day, and uh, so... Uh, the, the motto is, for all you singles, kiss a veteran today. Um, no, that's not it. That's not it. But I, when I was single, I tried it. I mean, I thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> my wife is not able to be here today, and I'm really glad after what I just said. 
because so many times on Sundays at lunch, she just looks at me and goes, what were you thinking? And I say, well, and she goes, no, I know the answer. You weren't. Okay, that's it. So, wasn't thinking. We're in a series on 1 John, and today we're going to look at, it says, Becoming Like Jesus, 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3. And I'm going to read that passage. It's on your sheet there, if you have the sheet with the little two-point outline. And John says, and now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be careful and unashamed before him at his coming. Careful, confident. We may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. At his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what, a, what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. All right, now John has been talking, and, and previously, uh, two weeks ago, he, he, we talked about the foundations. We talked about foundational truths that are so important uh, as Christians. And I think what can happen here is, after 1 John 1 and 1 John chapter 2, you can start to get this feeling like, man, I got a lot of work to do to be holy and righteous before God. I got to get on it, you know? I got to get my act together. And, and uh, I think John senses that because he wants them to understand it is not what they do, all right? Living for God is not a matter of effort. It's not how hard we work at it. John is going to counter that assumption, Living for God can be hard and can involve, we, we work at it. But he says, I want you to understand what's behind it. I want you to understand the mechanism that changes you, and I want you to understand the power that changes you. Because it is not your effort and power that changes you. That's impossible. You know, Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So right away, Jesus focuses on that idea. So if we look at point one, the mechanism of change and that is brought out in, in the first two verses, and I'm going to read them again just to keep it fresh in your mind. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. All right? So this is not what do I do to make myself change. This is how does it happen? What is the mechanism? You know, uh, um, it's not how does it work, no, it is. It's how does it work out in my life. From my viewpoint of, as a believer, how is this working? And he starts off by saying, dear children. And, and John, this is a very, this is, this is a very personal uh, term of endearment. It's like saying, you're one of my kids. I look at you that way. I love you like you're one of my very own children. And he says, continue in him. The word continue is that great word we see throughout the Bible, the word abide. We see that in, in, in when Jesus says, abide in me. He, it's a very powerful word. It's a very important word. And he says, and when he says continue, that's the word for abide, and it has this, uh, this kind of push that says, and keep on abiding, and keep on, keep doing it. Keep abiding. And abide, what is that? That's the idea of, this, of, of, of living when you say a person abides. That's where they live. It's a home. It's a refuge. It's where your center is. It's like in the movie Hook. It's your happy thought. You know, what, what is it that's at your core? And, and it's that one place, that one thought that gives you comfort, and it empowers you. It reminds you 
who you are, your core. It reminds you of who you are. And so he says, abide in him. Focus on him. Think about him. You know, Paul, when he talks about this, Paul, now this is John, Paul uses a, a word, we, we talked about this a long time ago when we were looking at it, but Paul uses a great word. The, the word in the Greek is apokaradokia, and it's three words together. Apo is the word away from. Kara is the word head. Dokia is the word to look. So it's this idea of looking away from yourself. That is, taking the focus off of you and focusing on something that's very, you focus on very intently. You focus on it to the point to where everything else kind of loses its pull on you because your focus is like tunnel vision. It's like laser-like. And Paul uses this where he talks about he's, he's going to apokaradokia on Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ is the focal point of my life. Everything else loses its appeal to me because I've put Jesus right there at the center, at the core, at the very key part of my focus. And so Paul says, I'm totally preoccupied, not with what's going to happen to me, but that Christ is honored. He talks about this in Philippians. He says, I'm totally, I'm totally focused on Christ so that all these other things, I've gone to prison, I have the death sentence possibly over my head. I don't care. He says, I don't care because I'm focused on Christ and I know he's going to do something. And he did something. We, we studied Philippians a, a, a while back. And what happened when Paul was in prison the cream of the crop of the Roman army, the Praetorian Guard, they were assigned, part of their job was to guard prisoners. Eight-hour shifts, handcuffed at the, at, the, at, the, at the wrists, sometimes at the ankles, for eight hours. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul? They're like, oh, shift change. Hey, bud, how you doing? Let's talk. Because that guy can't go anywhere. And Paul the evangelist was given a new person every eight hours, every day of the week, so that at the end of some of his letters, he talks about those of the Praetorian Guard greet you. And we know, we know from history that one of those men who became a Christian as part of the Praetorian Guard became the leader of a cohort, a, a leader of 10,000 men, 8,000 men, something like that. But then ultimately, he would not Say, Caesar is God. And he was killed for it. And he was one of the men, evidently, that Paul led to the Lord. Why? Because of Paul's laser-like focus. He didn't say, wow, it just sucks so bad to be in prison. This is terrible. Oh, the food's terrible. I have to have some guy chained to me for eight hours, you know, three times a day. I have to have somebody. Paul said, no, I'm going to see what God does in this. This could be pretty cool. So that every time, you know, hey, <laughs> Welcome. You know, let's talk. Okay, that's what happened. All right, so he says, look, John is telling us something. It's impossible to live the Christian life without, without him. It is impossible to live a righteous life without being born again. And he's implying here when he says, I want you to abide. You've already accepted Christ as your Savior. You've already had that kind of experience, that conversion. And he's saying, this is how we change. It can't happen apart from him, but this is how we change. This is how change starts from the inside out. Now, I mentioned it last, last week, but I want to go a little deeper on this because I, I was reading this week and I came across it again. I came across somebody who said, um, I want to be a, a moral, righteous person 
But I, I, so I want to follow the ethical teaching of Jesus. But uh, all that supernatural stuff, I'm, I don't really believe in that stuff. I just want the moral, ethical teaching of Jesus. That's how I want to live. I want to be a moral, ethical person. So the stuff that every, Christians get worried about don't bother me. Stuff like the preexistence of Christ. Stuff like the virgin birth. Stuff like the Trinity. Stuff like whether or not Jesus is God. Stuff like, oh, substitutionary atonement. Christ died for me on the cross. That's so barbaric. I don't believe that stuff. I don't think those things are important, he was right. They're, they only divide people. He said, what's important is the great truths of, like the Sermon on the Mount. Turn the other cheek. Love your neighbor. Forgive others. Be a peacemaker. Give to the poor. And this guy was writing. He was saying, those are the types of behavior that are so important. But here's the problem there. To look at it that way is to reduce these teachings simply to behavior. And Jesus goes way beyond behavior in the Sermon on the Mount. He shows that behavior starts in the heart, and the heart must be changed. When he, he, the first one, that first passage, the, the next one, where he talks, he, he says, he's talking about giving. But let me give you the two verses before this. I didn't put them on there. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So he says, so when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. And now we go to here. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing, what does that mean? He says what that means is there's no sense of self-congratulation. There's no sense of, you know how that happens, you know? I find sometimes um, I, get, I get really good about spending time in the Word and doing devotions, and I do that for quite a few days in a row, and I start going, <laughs> Bob, you are knocking it out of the park, baby. You've got it all together now. You know, second coming, the Apostle Paul, look out world. You know, you, you start thinking, man, humility is my greatest virtue. Those types of things. But see, left hand not knowing what the right is doing, no self-congratulation. No sense of superiority over other people. This type of giving is totally self-sacrificing because you're getting no return from it. You're getting nothing from it. There's very few things we can do in this life where we can know very, pretty surely, pretty, be pretty sure that we're not going to get anything. When, you, when we're involved with the port ministry of ministering to the homeless, you can be pretty sure you're not going to get anything for it. None of them are going to come see you in a few days and say, hey, let me take you out to lunch. Thanks for serving me dinner. Let me take you out. It's not going to happen, right? You know you won't. Okay, buying presents for children whose parents are incarcerated. There's, there's a, quite a possibility, unless you come to the party, you won't see that kid. You'll never get the thanks from me. You'll only get it if we read a letter from a parent. And, it, and it, he's saying, this is what not letting the right hand know what the left hand is doing, because you, there's no self-congratulations. There's, there's no superiority involved. You know that it's totally self-sacrifice. And especially, he, he phrases it here in helping the poor. There's no thought of recompense. I won't get anything. If I give to this person, I'm not going to get good business contacts. So he's saying, that's what not letting the, the left hand know what the right hand is doing. All right. Next one. This is all from the, also from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. 
Again, anyone who says brother or sister, raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now what is here? Jesus is saying here that God views things differently than we do. Of course murder is wrong. Everyone agrees on that basically. Of course murder is wrong. But Jesus expands this and he tells us what God thinks about the whole thing. Now, raka and then the, the phrase, you fool, are derogatory terms that express how a person feels about another person. They're ways of saying, you're a nobody. You're worthless. They mean that you treat another person and their struggles with total indifference. I could care less about you and your problems. They are belittling. They're mocking. They're evil speaking. They're saying, I don't care about you. And how do you show that you don't care about the person? You label them with derogatory terms. I read in a theological journal the other day, it wasn't that long ago, uh, a guy was talking about some of these commands in the Sermon on the Mount. And he was saying, these, they're impossible to follow. So Jesus must have meant something else. We need to figure out what he meant rather than what they obviously say. And, he, and like one of the things he said, how can people be expected not to lust? That's ridiculous. That's impossible. So what is that writer saying? He's saying, I can't do it. I can't live by the Sermon on the Mount because to live that way is to live a supernatural life. Exactly. He hit the nail on the head while he was trying to deny that it was true. That's exactly what it says. So that if someone says, I don't believe in miracles, but I will follow Jesus, the, like the ethical teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we would call a non-secretor. Because your conclusion is, has been totally blown away by the first statement. I don't believe in miracles, but I will follow Jesus' teachings. I'm sorry. To follow Jesus' teachings takes a miracle. It takes a miracle. It takes the miracle of the new birth. It takes us being changed from the inside out. Otherwise, we won't work. We, we, it won't happen that way. So when Jesus says here, he says, I don't want you. I don't want you belittling. I don't want you mocking. I don't want you treating people with indifference. Because if you do, it's like murder. He says, that's how God looks at it. That's how important this is. Now, here's our problem. We, we've, we, we've, we've kind of humanized God. What we've said is, oh, murder, so bad. Most of us think murder is really bad, probably because we're not murderers, right? And so it's what I don't do. And it's easy for me to condemn what I don't do. But treating someone with indifference, mocking someone, you know, telling someone they're worthless, Oh, that seems like kind of a little sin compared to murder. And God is saying, it isn't. Not to me. How you treat people. Why? Because every single person on this earth is created in the image of God. And he says, when you mock them, you mock me. When you belittle them, you belittle me. When you say they're worthless, you're saying I'm worthless. Don't do it. He takes it that seriously. He takes it that seriously. That's why it takes a miracle to follow it. We have to be born again. So when we abide, we're placing ourselves in a position to be used by God, to be changed by him. When we abide, we have two great strengths that then his appearing that, that is marked by. First is confidence. That word that's used in that passage of confidence, he says, he says that when he appears, we may be confident 
and unashamed. That word confident is a freedom, a boldness. It has to do with, uh, uh, the, the, the Jews would write it as a freedom in prayer. It was also known as a, like a freedom of speech, the ability, I will not be afraid. He says, as you change, when Jesus comes, you, you, it'll, you'll be open and confident and happy at his return. And it says also unashamed. There will be no shame. He took our shame. And that will culminate in his, at his return. There will be no shame in us when he comes for us. He will not be ashamed of us. There will be no shame placed upon us. We will ha- be, have confidence. We are to live in boldness. And there will be, it will culminate at the day that he returns and we will have no fear. He says that's what I On verse 29, if you look at verse 29 there, he says if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, earlier... John told us, Jesus Christ, he said, the righteous one. This is the one who purchased our salvation. Now, he's, he's answering an accusation that had been leveled in that day. There were people who said, Jesus is not righteous. Jesus was just a man. And then Christ, the Christ, the God spirit, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the manifestation of God, came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him right before his crucifixion. So that Jesus was just a man that God it used for a while because there's no way that God could feel pain. There's no way that God could suffer. There's no way that God could die. And so John's combating this. It's going on right there. And so he says, I want you to see something. I want you to see. You know that he is righteous. Now, there's two Greek words for no. In this first instance, it's the idea of uh, this idea of knowing something like it's a finished product. You've, you've observed and you've seen and you know it now because you, you've seen it happen. You say, I know this is true. The second time, he says, if you know that he is righteous, in other words, you know, man, Jesus Christ is righteous. You know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. The second no is a process of knowing. The second no is an experiential thing that takes time over time to know. In other words, you don't see somebody do something right one time and go, oh, that, they're born of God. No, it's this idea that you observe and it's a process and you see and you begin to say, this is how their life goes. I can see that this person knows Jesus Christ. And so he explains that when we see that Jesus is righteous, we, we discern who he is, tr- truly is, then we begin to experience something. We begin to perceive something about people around us. We begin to see it in their lives. People who are born of God are supposed to be different. They're supposed to have a difference in their life that becomes obvious over time. And he says, because they do what's right. Now, what is doing what's right? It's the idea of doing what pleases God. Not always what pleases people. Putting God and his desire first in our lives. And so we see, abiding in him is the mechanism of change. Then the question becomes, what powers that mechanism? I mean, obviously it's God. We're at church. We know that. But this, this, this passage highlights, highlights this as a different aspect because we see this mechanism of change in different parts of the Bible, and oftentimes different things about God are highlighted as part of the power. And so John's going to highlight a, a very particular aspect. So the second point is the power that changes us. What is this power that changes us? Because I'm always thinking, you know, I want to change. I want to change, God. I just struggle at it so much. It's like, it's like sometimes two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's two steps forward, four steps back. I get so mixed up and screwed up and I get, things, I get things wrong. So I want that power. So he says in this passage, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. All right? He's saying, 
the love, the love, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. He says, see, behold. It's a word that means there's excitement here. Uh, it used to be sometimes when I'd go on trips, I'd come home and I'd bring my kids when they were little. I'd bring them presents from the trip and they knew this was gonna happen. So I'd get home, you know, and I'd drag my suitcase in the door and I'm all exhausted. And they're like, dad, we're so happy you're home. What'd you get? And I said, oh, let's wait. Let me sit down. You know, let me talk to your mom. Let me give your mom a kiss and a hug and, and talk about her week. And they're like, no, 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 don't talk about mom. Don't talk about mom. What'd you get us? What'd you get us? What'd you get us? And they get so excited. So I'd roll that suitcase right out in the middle of our living room, you know, and I'd unzip that suitcase and I'd say, I'd say, Derek, what did I get? What did I get? What did I get? What did I get for you? Yeah. Behold, you know, I say, it's a gun that shoots rubber bands at your brother. And he's like, yes, my dream come true. And then I say, Cody, what did I get? What did I get? I got another gun for you to shoot back at your brother. And they're like, oh, and I say, okay, go outside and you know, shoot each other. Um, <clears throat> Right? And so I would pull these things out, and the aspect, the, 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 the joy of seeing it was so evident on their faces. I loved it. And this is what John's saying. Behold, look, experience this joy, this incredible love. I'd, I'd open up and say, Reagan, what did I get you? Reagan, what did I get you? I got you a ring from Arizona, handcrafted by 20 Navajos. You know, and, she, oh, and she'd look at it, she'd say, is it a real diamond? Yes, it's a real diamond. Of course it is. You see, I didn't go to the parental school of truth-telling. I didn't go to that one. Um, probably I'm a Slytherin. That must be part of it. Um, so John is saying, look, examine this closely. This is a treasure. It's beyond imagining. This great love for you. When you're converted, royal blood begins to flow through your veins. When he says, when he says here, that we should be called children of God. The word called is you have been named. God has given you a name. It's your name. It's very interesting. In the Old Testament, he says, I will tattoo your name on the palm of my hand. So that every time God looks at his hands, he sees your name. Isn't that cool? That's crazy. He says, you've been, you've been named. You are now a child of God. And his point is, think of the love that it took for that to happen. This great love, this lavished love. The word the translators are trying to express here is a great word. It's potapin. It has this idea. It really means, literally, from a distant country. Or they would say, from what country? Potapen. And, and he's saying, this love that is, and so it began to be used as a common word for something that was totally out of the realm of my experience. Almost like otherworldly. Almost like supernatural. And he says, look at this love. This love is lavish. This love is extravagant. This love is reckless. This love is unfathomable. This love has adopted you to become a child of God, a son or daughter of the king. This is incredible love. He's saying, think about what it took for that to happen. He says, you've been adopted. 
You know, this is not just terminology. This is not just sweet platitudes. And John, John knows that. John knows that people might think that. And so he adds something to it. He says, see the great, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And, and what, really, that, that is what we are. Is only one word. Amy. It's from Amy. The word Amy is I am. That should ring a bell. I am. When they asked Jesus about being, you know, his divinity, he said, I am. And they knew right away what he was saying. He was saying, Yod, hey, Vav, hey, Yahweh. I am. And Amy is the Greek expression of that. Now, what they did is they put it in the plural. And so John says, hey, see what great love the Father's lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. We are. He's saying, these aren't pious platitudes. These aren't sweet little things that I want to say to you. I said, this is essentially you. Amy means at the core, this is who I am. We are. We are. He emphasizes it because he wants them to see how important this is. He wants them to see how important it is that we've been adopted by God. Now, adoption in those days was different from how we have adoption in our days. In those days, no children were adopted. Well, not long after that, the adoption of children started by the Christians. The Christians started that. It wasn't going on anywhere else. But the Romans adopted adults. What would happen is maybe some Roman senator and he's got all this, you know, he's got lands and he's got money and he's got a position and he's got power and he's got a worthless kid. And he's going, I don't want to give this to this loser. He'll just spend it and do stupid things with it. I need a good kid. Have you ever felt that way? <laughs> I need a good kid. And so what would they do? They'd adopt an adult. They'd adopt someone that they'd, they'd been seeing, you know, maybe they'd been keeping their eyes on. That's what Caesar did. The second Caesar was Octavius. He was adopted. He was adopted. And what would happen? They'd be renamed. And when they did, all their debts were paid off. All their debts were charged to the adopting father. Any further debts they incurred were charged to the adopting father. Interesting thing. In, in, in uh, Roman uh, society, you could disown your kid. If you adopted a kid, you could never disown them. Never. It was forbidden by law. You see the implications when the Bible says you're adopted? It has tremendous implications. All your debts are paid by the father who adopted you. You get a new name. You can never be disowned. He has sworn that. And for this reason, this incredible love that has broken into our life, it changes us. The world can't understand it, he says. The world operates on a different system. All right? He says the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. The reason it doesn't know us, it did not know him. With Jesus, why did they not know? How did they not know Jesus? They had these expectations of what he would do. They had these expectations of the good that he would bring to their country. And so they wanted him to be king for the, all the wrong reasons. And they believed it was God's plan. They believed it with all their hearts. But they couldn't figure out what made Jesus tick. And the same can happen to us. Because Jesus, Paul, John, they all say there's two different systems. There's like two types of spiritual DNA. You're either a child of God 
or you're a child operating in this world system, a child of the forces of darkness, he would say in, in, in some places. At your core, you're one or the other. And the essence of one core is expressed by the desires that are voiced by Satan in the Old Testament. I will ascend. I will grasp equality with God. I will rule. And it's contrasted with what Jesus said in Philippians 2. I will descend. I will not grasp equality with God. I will serve. And you got one or the other going, in, flowing through your veins. And when that DNA, I will descend, I will not grasp I will serve. When that DNA gets into your, people don't understand it. And so he's saying the love of God is the transforming power that's working in our lives. It's working right now in your life, and the final transformation will happen when we see him face to face. And that's why he says in verse 3, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Okay, so all who have this hope, this is the idea of a fixed gaze, a focus. My hope is on him. The focal point of my gaze is Jesus Christ. The love of God is purifying. But here we are again, over and over and over, this idea of focus. And John uses a word here that is key in his argument. In verse two, he says, when Christ appears, he says, remember um, that his, his opponents, they would say that Jesus was a man. Christ was this God essence that dropped on him, stayed with him for a while, and then left him. And so, so John's fighting that continually. And here he fights it in a very subtle way with two different words. Okay? He says, all who have this hope on him purify themselves just as he is pure. Right? Whenever we, whenever we talk about God the Father and his purity, it is the word hagios. It means absolute purity absolute holiness. Here, when we talk about Jesus, it's not hagios, it's hagnos. Then it's a whole different, and what this means is purity that has been proven through trials and temptations. Purity that has been shown over the course of a lifetime. What is John saying there? Because if you notice, he says in verse 2, Christ Christ is the subject of this sentence. All who have this hope in him, in Christ, purify themselves. Now, see what's going on there? For these people that he's been arguing against, Christ is the God essence, not the man. So you can't use purity that's come through temptation and trials for God. You can't use that in their way of thinking. And what John says is, John says, yes, Jesus is, is the Christ. His purity is a purity that has come through trials. His purity is a purity that has been exposed to temptation. It's been exposed to impurities and it's come out pure. So Jesus is God. I mean, this, just verse two and verse three, in the Greek is one of the clearest proclamations of the Godhead of Jesus Christ in the Bible. It's point blank and it can't be argued with. And John's dealing with those people. But here we're told to purify. How does that work? Well, what you have to think about is, in the Old Testament, when they would have cleansing pools before they went into the temple, they would do a ceremonial purification. And what would they do? They would dip down into the cleansing pool, and, and then they would, in a sense, almost like a wash, they would allow the water to take away the impurities from their body. 
So they weren't making themselves pure. The water was purifying them. And so when Jesus says, we want you to purify yourselves, he's, he, he, when John says that, he's using this illustration that they would all latch onto. And he's saying, what is the water that washes us now? Over and over in the Word, in the New Testament, it talks about being washed by the water of the Word. That is the water that washes us. So when he says, purify yourself, what is he saying? He's saying, take a bath in the Word. Get into the Word. Why? Because John knows that's where the power is. That's where I see the love of God so clearly, is through the word. That's what's gonna change me. So we talk about this mechanism of change and what is the power behind it? The power behind it is the word as it works. We recognize this great love of God. Behold this great love, this extraordinary, this otherworldly love that has been lavished on you by the Father. He didn't just give you a little bit. I've been happy with a little bit. He didn't just give you a little bit. He just overflows you with it. And so the word cleanses you as the spirit works in you. And as your hope is fixed on him, focused on God, you are allowing him to do that in your life. How can I change? I fix my eyes on Jesus. I read his word. I allow it to speak to me. And he starts to change me from the inside out. Not outward change, inward change. Because outward change is easy. You can do outward change. You can guilt somebody into changing outwardly. You can force someone to change outwardly. But inward change only comes through the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, give us a little glimpse. Just glimpses, maybe even just this week, of your great love for us. And then help us to allow that to change us, to purify us, so that we behave differently. We do what is right before you. Help us to be willing to admit where we're wrong and to allow you to change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're gonna take an offering, and as the men come forward, just wanna say, um, if you are a guest here, we're not asking you to give. You know, We want you to know, this is what our regular tenders and our members do as a part of their worship.